All right, well, let's go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll get into our, our lesson here this evening. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. It provides us uh, things to meditate upon about you. Uh, and as we look at this uh, letter of Paul, the Philippians, that is so, so familiar to many, uh, we pray that uh, we would be individuals who would um, <clears throat> consider it and uh, in, in the final thing here this evening, just understand what the true message here of the book of Philippians is and uh, reflect on it and uh, be all the more like Christ as a result of it. So we thank you. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the book of Philippians, uh, this letter written to this church. Um, don't have all these details on it, but this is a church that was the first church that the Apostle Paul went to in Europe. Uh, he was in Asia. Turkey is part of Asia. Uh, had done much in that on the first missionary journey, second missionary journey. He kind of went through those areas and got to the end of Asia Minor, didn't know what to do, Acts chapter 16. Uh, it's at that point where the Lord had closed a bunch of doors, and then he sent the man of Macedonia and a vision and saying, come over and help us. And so Paul gets in a boat, the wind's directly behind him, they sail to the port that's near Philippi, they walk up the road to Philippi, and there they establish this church that is uh, a very interesting church. You think about it, you had uh, Lydia, a woman who was a businesswoman who was able to keep the church in her house. Uh, you have an individual who had been demon-possessed at one time that uh, was a part of this church, and a man who uh, was part of the Roman officials uh, and uh, part of the Roman government. He was a soldier responsible for guarding uh, prisoners. So you had a very large cross-section of people in this church. And out of all the churches, this is probably, I would say, the one that Paul is most affectionate for. Um, I don't have this listed in the notes either, but um, it's a good study just to go through the book of Philippians and just see how many times there's this idea of I and my that the Apostle Paul is saying over and over again. It's not that Paul is egotistical, he's prideful, it's just that there is a very close, friendly relationship between him and this church. It's not one that he's had to struggle and fight with. It's one that uh, had been an encouragement to him. And even in this letter, you see that the church at Philippi is one of the churches that's sending him gifts to take care of him as he's in prison. And so there's an affection between uh, Paul and uh, this church in Philippi, the first church in Europe. Uh, the author, surprisingly, Apostle Paul, uh, and it will be that way until we get to the book of Hebrews, and then we'll stir up controversy um, as to who is the author of that one. The time, or excuse me, the time written, okay, this letter was written during Paul's imprisonment in Rome, so it's one of four prison epistles. We looked at one last week, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon are sister letters, and they're in the same location. Uh, this church of Philippi is in a completely different location, but it's one of four prison epistles, but we know that it is written while Paul is in Rome. You know, people, some suggest when, maybe when Paul was in Caesarea, he wrote, he was there two years, maybe he wrote the letters then. Um, this one, for the letter to Philippi, we're pretty sure because it mentions the Praetorian Guard in 113, it talks about it, it's how the, the, our translation translates, but it's in the palace, it's probably referring to the Praetorian Guard that guards the uh, Caesar, uh, that Paul is there in that, and then Caesar's household he's amongst. So 
it's Rome. Uh, you read uh, this letter, and there's much correspondence between Paul and the church. The church finds out that Paul's in prison. They send Epaphroditus with a gift. Uh, realize this, when you went to jail, you paid for your jail time. Unlike what you have today, uh, you paid for your jail time, so if you wanted food, people had to provide you food. Okay, somebody had to be giving you food of some kind, and you had to have some sort of money, and, and that, uh, paying for all of this. Uh, so they send a gift. Uh, Epaphroditus worked to help Paul's finances. He, he gets there and realizes what Paul actually does need, and Epaphroditus is actually working there in Rome, getting funding for Paul. He realizes the church, if they knew about the situation, would be going, well, we need to help Paul out. He just does it manually by doing the work. In the process, he becomes seriously ill. Then you see this, that the church at Philippi hears of his sickness. The, the distance between Philippi and Rome by boat was probably about a, a month's time. So if you were to take a ship, go from Rome to Philippi, about a month. So you're looking at you know, this information going back and forth. You're talking one month's journey, one month's journey back. Uh, when they hear that Epaphroditus is not uh, doing well, they want to do something, but by that time Epaphroditus was better and was going to bring this letter back. So you're probably talking about six months of stuff that's going on between the church at Philippi and Paul uh, that's here. So it's near the end of Paul's imprisonment. He's imprisoned in Rome for about two years. Uh, He mentions that he's about to be released. He's looking forward to his release. Um, you know, the court seems to be moving on this, and so he is uh, ready for this. So it would probably be closer to 61 A.D. Uh, at the end of Paul's first imprisonment. The second one that he had was after uh, Nero condemns all Christians and Paul is going to die, and that's what Second Timothy is going to talk about. So that's when the time was written. Then we have the theme, and for us, if we were to, and I'm not going to put the slide up yet, okay? If I was to ask you to give me a one-word theme for Philippians, what is it? Okay, if I was to quote one verse uh, that you're familiar with from uh, Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, okay? So most people, when they come to the book of Philippians, they say, this is the theme. It's rejoicing or joy. And as you look at this, most people think that this letter is all about joy. The word in some form appears 16 times. In a very short letter, that's a lot of times. Uh, Paul was in great hardship and joy is possible in those kinds of circumstances. So you can preach all sorts of sermons where you talk about, hey, you can be joyful. Paul was in prison. You can have joy. So you ought to be joyful. Be joyful. And as a teenager and as even a young adult and and being a pastor, you kind of go through that and you're kind of going... Yes, there is that command. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. So it's a command. You're supposed to be joyful. And it is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians tells us this, that this is a natural, you know Christ, joy is something that the the Spirit is going to work into you. But 
when you think about this and you have Paul going through this trial of being in prison and not him in great health and these type of things himself, and he's saying, you need to be joyful, and then you preach a sermon like this, you need to be joyful, you're not really dealing with what needs to be dealt with. Okay, you're dealing there with the outcome that you want but you're skipping the process. Now, we'll get there in a second. It's not to say that there's a lot of stuff to be said about joy in this book because it's, it's more in this book than any other book, okay? Some have suggested that really the theme is about this, the gospel. And you say, well, what's the gospel? Well, if we were to find the gospel, the gospel as you look through scripture it's the gospel oftentimes referred to this way the gospel of jesus christ when you see that statement you ought to think about it this way it's not the gospel about jesus christ it's the gospel that is jesus christ okay he is the good news he is the gospel and when you go through this book there's a lot of reference to christ and you have the high point probably, uh, you know, you have some portions in Hebrews where it talks about Christ and who he is, and you have some magnificent statements about him. Philippians chapter 2, right in the middle, you have one of the greatest statements what the gospel is. Why don't you turn to it? I'm going I'm to quote it for you, but I want you to look at it, okay? Because you probably could quote part of it to me, Okay. Uh, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, which he was God, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, I just skipped something, took upon him uh, form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. He was willing to die a cross kind of death. You go, what's the difference? You know, death is not a pleasant thing, but there are more pleasant ways to die. You know, fall asleep at night and you die in your sleep. Okay, you know what? That's, you know, calm way to die. Uh, cross kind of death, not that way one of the most miserable deaths a person could die because it's not that you bleed to death you suffocate to death over hours he was willing to die a cross kind of death but you see on the other side this wherefore god hath highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that at the name of jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven things in earth things under the earth I just, I I blanked out here. So I'm in front of you, I'm quoting, you know, never do that. Uh, Anyhow, but but you get through it. It's a classic statement where you have, okay, what's the the good news? When you hear 1 Corinthians talk about it, it's that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and it rose again and was seen of people, witnesses. He died on the cross, he rose again. Okay, that's the good news. 
this one who died for our sins, also rose to show that he has supremacy over it, that he is exalted above everything now in the right hand of God. So you're sitting here going right in the middle of this book, let this mind be in you. Okay, Jesus Christ, he is in heaven reigning and ruling. He has had victory over sin. And so you'd go, okay, I'm supposed to concentrate on Jesus Christ. Okay, you're getting there. Okay, we're getting closer to what Paul is wanting people to do. Okay, you have joy. It's somehow connected, I will say this, to Jesus Christ. But there's something else going on in this book of Philippians that you need to mark down. And when I got this, it finally made sense to me. Paul is not really concerned about your joy. I mean, he is saying you need to be joyful, but he's really not concerned about that. He's concerned about this, okay? We'll, we'll show you what the slide says is this, okay? Paul emphasizes one activity in this book above all others, and it's thinking. You go through, and as you start in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul is going to have these different words, thoughts, mind, knowing, and words about focus. I'm pressing, and I'm looking and marking certain things. There is this idea that the mind is engaged in something. It's thinking about something. You go, well, what is it thinking about? They're thinking a person who is focused and has their mind set on Christ. Okay? They're thinking about the realities of this good news. Jesus Christ died on the cross. Okay, that means my sins are forgiven. I have the reality of eternity in heaven. I mean, see how it affects you here. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Okay, here's a person that realizes no matter how difficult the circumstances get, if he's to die, okay, it's fine. You know, what kind of person does that? It's a person who's got his mind stayed on Christ, realizing he died on the cross for my sins, he rose again to give me life eternal, the worst thing that can happen to me is to die, and I'll be with him for eternity, in glory. Um, <clears throat> this book is about the way you think especially your consideration of Christ, or you use a, uh, I, I could use an Old Testament word, uh, meditation. Okay, your meditation about Christ. But you have the statement in verse 5 of chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. The theme could be stated this way in the book, careful consideration or careful meditation or thinking about Christ strengthens your joy. Um, why do people get depressed? Other than the fact that there may be a physical difficulty, okay, you know, you may have a chemical imbalance or you have something going on that people get depressed and discouraged. Where, where does it start? Do people get discouraged because they're not thinking about anything? No, they get discouraged because they're thinking about something. They're concentrating on something. That's why they get discouraged. That's why they get depressed. It's not that they're not thinking. It's because they're thinking too much about something. 
events, circumstances, whatever it may be, they're thinking about that. And what happens is that it's sort of like Peter as he goes walking on the water and he's got his focus on Christ and then he starts looking at the waves and he goes under. He starts looking at the difficulties around him and focuses on that rather than focusing on Christ. And that's what happens many times to Christians is that you find that they don't have joy. It's because they have concentrated their attention and their mind and their consideration on something other than Christ. That's not to say you don't have to take care of things. I mean, Paul's in prison. He's got things to take care of. He's got to go to court. He's got to make sure he's getting meals and that type of thing. But for him to think that this is the end all and bring his focus and his energy on those things alone would make him discouraged would make him depressed. And so what Paul is challenging these people about is not just merely, you know, as our our culture would say, be happy. Okay, work up happiness. You can't. No, it's what you're thinking about and what you have your focus on does increase your joy. You stifle your joy when you're looking at all the things in this life and you're not allowing the Spirit of God to do the work in your life when you're concentrating on how I'm going to take care of this and not what Christ has already done. What He has done to take care of all of the major problems in life. So it's a book about thinking, not necessarily about your joy, though it does impact your joy. What are you thinking about? So uh, it's a a good thing if you ever read through the book of Philippians, just go through and mark through when you see words like knowing or thought or this mind or these type of things that are talking about a concentrated attention, thinking, engaging the mind um, as you go through the book of Philippians uh, and it will help you to understand, okay, why could Paul then be content in whatever so, whatsoever state he was in? What do you think about Okay, uh, a fairly easy book to go through. Uh, it is not one that has got compli- complicated things in it. Um, some of them you, you go through and there are some complicated issues, but Philippians is one that Christians like because it is easily readable. Uh, there's a lot of things in it that are easy to keep track of. Paul starts off and he has this thanksgiving as he opens many letters and prayer for the Philippians. The church at Philippi brought great thanksgiving for uh, brought out great uh, thanksgiving for the good work that was going on among them. He prayed that this work would continue and that they would choose the best things. Perhaps you've heard this passage before as you think through this that Paul says in verse 9, this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in the knowledge, okay, here you go, knowledge and all judgment, okay, uh, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, the idea is there that your love, your selflessness will be abounding and it's bounded by the fact of your knowledge and your discernment. You got your mind engaged. And so if you've got your mind engaged, it's going to impact your, your activities, the way you respond to certain things. And so uh, he's saying, I'm praying that you don't just choose the good things, that you choose the most excellent things, the best things for you in your life, that you make the right decisions based on this. And so uh, incredible prayer there to start off Philippians chapter 1. What you see in verses 12 through 26 is that the Apostle Paul makes this statement to the church that they've heard that bad things are going on, 
and there may have been the tendency to have a pity party for him, but Paul just simply says this, is that he had been in prison, but it allowed him to preach the gospel to government officials. I mean, he basically sees that we, things that we call bad as human beings, sometimes scripture calls it evil, you know, bad things that happen, uh, that it allows us opportunities to go to places we would never go otherwise. Do you think the Apostle Paul would have been able to walk right into Caesar's house? He's parked in Caesar's house by force, by Caesar. And he's able to preach to officials there. Uh, they come and listen to him and talk with him and discuss things with him. He's able to talk to the soldiers that are there. And he would have never had that opportunity if he hadn't been arrested. And he recognizes this. And he says, it's not only that, it sometimes has impact on others. You, you read that um, verse 14, that he's been in prison. And in verse 14, many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He realizes this. He's in prison, and he's in prison for Christ. And there's other people going, I'm not in prison for Christ, but what am I doing for Christ? And so you have people that are preaching Christ as a result of seeing what's happened, the bad things that's happened to Paul. Now, ironically, reading this passage, though, there are some people that are preaching out of spite and jealousy. You know, they're preaching Christ because they're jealous? Yeah. You go, why? Because there, there is some thought that maybe some individuals there were thinking, okay, Paul's getting all the attention because he's in prison. You know, I need to do something for Christ. So they start preaching Christ. Now, is that kind of the motivation you really want to have for preaching the gospel? Not really. But Paul says the message of Christ is getting out as a result of people like that. And, and he says, okay, so what's the worst thing that can happen to me? You know, I'm looking to get out, verse 20. But if I don't, I'm hoping that Christ will, at the end of verse 20, that he will be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death, for me to live as Christ. There's this, this mathematic equation there. For me to live... Christ. To die is to die gain, profit. I mean, that's what that word means. Eternal profit. He says, okay, I may die, but I'm here right now. It's a great passage to consider. If the Lord still has you here on this earth, he's got a purpose and plan for you. We talked about this when we had the class in Sunday school with the men, uh, and we talked about retirement. When you're retired, that doesn't mean you quit doing things. God's got you here as long as he needs you here. So he's got something for you to be doing. And Paul realizes, he says, if I'm not dying and I'm not being executed for my faith, he goes, God's got more things needful for you that I'm going to help you with. And so I'm here for a purpose. And so no matter what bad circumstances you could be going through, if you're still here, God's got a purpose and plan for you being here. And when he finally takes you home, then you've got the eternal gain is now your possession. And so for Paul, he's just simply, in the, the whole section, bad circumstances sometimes lead to gospel opportunities, opportunities to magnify Christ, whether it would be with believers and praising with them or just preaching the gospel of what Jesus Christ is doing. Bad circumstances are not the end of the world a believer just the start just the start turning now what paul then does verse 27 
and uh, going to chapter 2 and verse 18, is that Paul appeals for these believers to live out the gospel of Christ. To live out Christ. Okay, they're called Christians. Uh, And uh, if you're Christians, you're little Christ. And so Paul says, I want you to live in such a way like this. And I mean, he talks about this, uh, that uh, verse 27, chapter 1, only let your conversation, uh, the idea there is that you have the citizenship, and for these Romans that are there in Philippi, they were citizens of Rome, even though they lived in Philippi, you know, hundreds of miles away, they were citizens of Rome. And uh, even though they were far away, they had the same things that the Italian citizens could claim. They were citizens of Rome, uh, which allowed them to have certain privileges. And Paul says, okay, you as Christians have certain citizenship privileges because you're part of the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. But you get to this passage in chapter 2, and it says this, if there be any consolation, and really the idea is there, since there is consolation in Christ, and since there's comfort of love, and since there's fellowship of the Spirit, and if there, you know, since there are bowels and mercies, that's kind of a weird term for us, but bowels is where the emotion's at. If you have emotions, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Okay, you're thinking. Okay, if you're going to act like you should to other people, you're thinking. It's going to play a role in this. You're thinking about what Christ is like and what you should be exemplifying uh, for him. And then this passage there, this great hymn of what Christ is like. And the idea of this is when you get done with looking at Christ, look at verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always always obeyed, not as also in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you both the will and the do of uh, his good pleasure. Now, that is a controversial passage until you just simply understand what it means. Okay? Work out your own salvation. Uh Uh-oh. Work salvation. You're going, "Uh uh-uh, because you read chapter 3, and Paul's very definitely against work salvation. What does it mean by that term, work out your salvation? What you ought to be doing is displaying out what Christ has done for you. Okay, That's what that term means. It's displaying, demonstrating okay, what the gospel has done for you, what Jesus Christ has done. And you see this because God's working in you. You say, why do I become more like Christ? Is it because I'm a person who's really working hard? No, it's because God's doing a good work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So you do have the responsibility to live like Christ, but understand, it's not you just yourself doing it, but you have God coming along in tandem with you, helping you in this process to live out your salvation, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so they need to have this. Their thinking needed to reflect the whole life of Christ who left glory, took on lowly human flesh in order to become a servant to all. This mindset would live in such a way as to be a light in a world that is crooked and perverse. That's how it ends there in verse number uh, uh, 15, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. If you're living for Christ, you have the mindset of Christ, it doesn't matter. You're going to be a light. 
because you live amongst a bunch of people who are living in darkness. So live out the life of Christ in your life. And so you have this exhortation to live out the gospel. You get to chapter 2 and verse 19 through 30. This is kind of a section that's a little bit harder to apply personally to us. It's more of Paul's interaction with the Philippians, and that's why we say Paul's plans towards the Philippians. Paul had a desire to send Timothy. Say, why Timothy? Because he makes this claim in the passage that there's no one like-minded as him. Um, Verse 20, for I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. He thinks like I do. That's why I want to send him. I can't get out of prison. He's not, he's wandering around. He could come back to you. I want to send him because he thinks like I do. He has this this Christ mindset uh, that is there. And so he wants to send Timothy. And he also gives a report on Epaphroditus, whom the Philippians had sent. He had delivered the gift, worked beyond to help Paul. He nearly died, but the Lord had spared him. And what Paul just simply says is that he has been a good testimony to who you are as a congregation. Uh, He has reflected well on you. uh, And almost in the sense you get done, he's thanking the congregation for sending this one who didn't even regard his life. In fact, the idea there at the end of verse 30 is that he almost risked his life. He gambled his life to try and take care of me. That's how far he went. So Paul's plans for the Philippians. All of chapter 3 is a warning about false teachers. Now, I do want you to just take a look at verse 1. Paul states this, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. You're like, wait a second, wait, 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 that's in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. This is one of these Pauline things where he looks like he's about to close up the letter and then he goes off on a rabbit trail, a divine Holy Spirit rabbit trail. And he does for a whole chapter here. Rejoice in the Lord. Okay, well, you know what? I just remembered something. Not that you don't rejoice in the Lord. We'll get back to that. Uh, And what he starts dealing with is false teachers. Um... Verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. You're like, oh, so we don't have to beware of cats. Dogs are evil. No, um, that's not what is being talked about. It's actually a derogatory term. Uh, It's a term that, if you think about the way the Jews referred to the nations, they actually used the term for dogs to refer to other nations in their language. And what Paul is doing is reversing this language where he's just saying there's individuals that are going to come into the church that are going to call themselves religious leaders, but they're dogs, they're evil workers, they are ones who are concision, individuals who are uh, dividing. And you say, well, what are they doing? Well, they're proclaiming a work salvation. They're coming in, and and what he's talking about with this group, uh, the first group here, is what we have called the legalists, And what they're doing is that they're saying, you need to work for your salvation. Now, Jesus Christ is not sufficient. You need to work. You need to do certain ceremonies. And then you'll be saved. And the Apostle Paul gives his own personal history and says, I know what that's like. He goes, I did all those things. I was the best. I got the gold star. You know, I checked all the boxes of what it was to be a good Jew. And he makes this statement, verse 7 of chapter 3, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. 
Yea, doubtless I count all things but the loss of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. I mean, here's an individual who realizes that nothing matters unless he has Christ. And you think about this, verse 9, being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained either or were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I have not counted myself to apprehend it, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You know, what's he thinking about? He wants to be like Christ. He wants to understand Christ. He wants to know Christ. He wants to understand certain things about him. He wants to understand the power of the resurrection. You go, what's that mean? He wants to see that kind of resurrection power in his life. Now, when we talk about, we had the baptism two weeks ago, and you have this baptism, and you baptize a person, baptize thee in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to, what do we say, newness of life, okay? What, what do you want to see, that resurrection power, that there's newness in my life, that I look like Christ, not like the old things, old things have passed away, those things are behind me, not looking at those things, but pursuing those things which are before, that I have this life in Christ, and I want to know him, and I want to be like him, and I want to experience what his power is like. And this is what Paul goes. I'm casting off everything else, but my thinking is this. I'm focused on him. See, you get this whole theme of thinking again on Christ. And so he says, okay, avoid legalists, because Christ is the only thing that will matter to you. But then there's a second group he warns about, and I call them the, the lustful members. Because these are people that are actually in the congregation that fall away. Uh, They're described as individuals who have as uh, their God their belly. Verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. These are people that used to walk with them. You say, were these people Christians? I don't know. I don't know the hearts. But these people are exhibiting everything of not knowing Christ or giving up on Christ and they're going after their own fleshly desires. And Paul says, remember this, your citizenship's not here. Okay, I give the illustration when we preach through this, but I'll give you the shortened version of this. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, <clears throat> it's really an illustration of Vanity Fair. Have you ever thought about what that illustration is when Pilgrim, or the Christian, and his friend come with him through that town, and there's everything, and there's a street for everything, and you go through it, and all these people are calling to them and saying, stay here, stop here. And what's the reaction? Pilgrim, as he goes through, he's simply at times covering his ears, but saying, we aren't staying here because we have someplace we're going. We're not driving down our tent stakes here. We're not building foundations here. No, our citizenship's in the celestial city. 
Okay, so it is with a Christian. You don't dig down here because our, verse 20, our conversation, or there's that word, you underline it, your citizenship, it's a word we get politics from, your citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus, who shall change our vile body, that it might be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working by whereby he's able to subdue all things to himself. <laughs> you know what? Life's going to get really bad here, possibly, but it doesn't matter, because the new body I've got, it's like unto his glorious body. Kind of going, wow, why would I want to just continue to enjoy living here? And so you have this, this ending thing here, okay? Paul was concerned about some of the members that seemed to be pursuing their own lust. They had left following Christ. They did not see the beauty of heaven or recognize the glorious change that God had in store for them. The world had pressured them. Paul warns the congregation to stand fast in Christ. That's what you have in verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, excuse me, therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and long for my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. So you ought to mark that because oftentimes you read through this and you stop in chapter 3 and realize this chapter markings didn't happen until about a thousand years after the book was written, the letter was written. It was so as to find things easier. Sometimes they cut off the message that Paul's wanting to get. <clears throat> so then it brings us to the last section here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul just gives some practical challenges for the Philippians. Okay, let me... Let me Let's work out a few specific details in your congregation that I know. And the first one is this, is that he says, you need to be unified as a church body. Christ is not divided. Okay? If you're a body, you don't have, you know, you don't disconnect parts on your body unless there's something drastic that needs to take care of. Uh, you want it all working together. And he says, okay, you need to have unity in your church, and I'm going to specifically name two women uh, they are named uh, in verse 2, Yodius and Syntyche. Uh There are individuals that call them Odious and Stinky or Yodius and Sotuchi. Um, but they're two women in the church. They're not just people from the outside that do nothing for the church. These are two women where Paul says they have done ministry for the Lord. They have ministered and served others. It's, these are people who are regular church members that have somehow gotten out of line with one another. And what Paul says is this, you need to come along and you need as a church to set them back together again. Your united effort working with them, you need to help with this. Make the body of Christ united. And so you have this responsibility as in when you have a sickness, your body, different parts of it suddenly activate to come and help the body fix itself. So it is, Paul says, you know, come along these two women here. They're women, they love the Lord. It's just that they've gotten their nose out of joint here. Get them together and get them back as best friends, as my guess is what this was. Um, but it's unusual that Paul names, actually names two specific people. But he, he deems it important enough to name these two people and say, listen, you help them. Uh, and so he writes this, then he says, okay, you need to have holy living and thought. Now, here's where we get into the practical section uh, of this whole idea of thinking. Because verse 4 starts this way, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. 
Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Okay, so you're, you're a balanced individual. You realize the Lord's coming. You don't get so overzealous about that. You still deal with things in this life. But then verse 6, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Okay, you could reword verse 6 this way. Don't worry about anything, pray about everything. Okay, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. And you go, okay, that would, you know, don't, is in our translation, be careful for nothing, you know, I, I have no cares in this world. No, it's just simply saying, don't be anxious. That's that word care. What you do is you take your, your anxiety to God because He cares for you more than you care about yourself. He wants to take care of the things you got problems with. And it's when we finally go, there are things I know I can't take care of, I'm just going to let God take care of them, that God is able to then engage something else in your hearts and minds. He's able to engage the fact, okay, I can give you that peace that settles things here. Okay, once again, why don't I have joy? Because I'm worried about my circumstances. I'm anxious. I'm wringing my hands over this and whatever. And you just simply go, wait a second, God can take care of this. Is it something I can't take care of? It's something that hasn't even happened yet. It may not happen. Lord, I'm giving it to you. God goes, okay. I'm going to do something supernatural. I'm going to give you that fruit of the Spirit, which is, ah, peace. God does this. And then not only this, understand in verse 8, if you have trouble realizing that you're supposed to think about certain things, here you go. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. You got this checklist. If you go through it and you're going, well, I'm, I'm concentrating on this, eh, it doesn't fit that checklist. Maybe I shouldn't be concentrating on it anymore. Maybe there should be something I should be concentrating that's good, honest, right, just, holy. These type of things. Verse 9, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen and me do. Okay? You've seen certain things. You've heard certain things. You go, okay, this is the way it's supposed to be lived out. Okay, I ought to be practicing these things. And the God of peace shall be with you. Okay? Note simply this. Familiar section challenges the believer in multiple areas of living. Mainly believers are not to be anxious, but to take everything to God. Part of the reason for this failure is that the thinking of the believer has been focused on the wrong thing. This is why a checklist of good meditations is given. What you ought to be concentrating on is given to you. Now, this last passage is one that is oftentimes misused. Okay? <clears throat> Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And verse 19, but my God shall supply all your need according to the riches, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Okay? Those are two of the most misused verses because they're taken completely out of context. Context is always important when you have a Bible verse that you're using as a promise. Make sure it's in context. Because what Paul is talking about here is not that he gets whatever he wants and he can do whatever he wants. You know, you, you have basketball players that have this on their shoulder, you know, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me, you know. 
I can play a better game of basketball because I got this on my arm. And this is what I believe. No. You know, you'll run faster, jump higher. No, no, that, that, that's not what this is talking about. In fact, what Paul is talking about in context is that verse number 11, not that I respect, he's talking about the gift that he received and he said, okay, thank you for the gift that you sent me. Not verse 11, that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I'm okay with whatever situation God has set me in because he's put me there. So, verse 12, I know how to be both abased and how to abound. Everywhere in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I can, I can handle going through difficult circumstances because I have Christ. I also know how to handle abundance because I don't get proud and lifted up because I still remember Christ who left the riches of glory to come to an earth like this to serve. Okay? It's, it's the idea that he understands that I am completely satisfied and settled wherever God's got me because I know he's with me. He's put me there. He'll take care of me there. Now, you get to then in this statement at the end, he's saying, thank you for the gift. Verse 18, uh, I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor, an aroma of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What he's saying here is, you know what? It may have cost you a lot to send this gift personally to help me out. And he's just simply saying, doesn't matter whatever state you're in. God's going to take care of your need. So if you think, you know, suddenly the bank account's gone dry, God's going to take care of you there. He takes care of you when you're bountiful too. It's not as obvious because we sometimes get self-sufficient, but he's going to take care of you. So my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. He's going to take care of your needs. And if you're going, okay, I have Christ, I have everything I need. Okay, my thinking affects the way I feel. It affects my emotions and my understanding, and it gives me a joy that's not just a surface happiness, but it is a rejoicing in heart that I have bounty and great, or great things that have been given to me both in this life and in eternity because I have, I have Christ. So I may be in prison. I'm right where the Lord wants me at, and he'll take care of me. I could be living richly, I'm right where God needs me to be at and he'll take care of me there too. So it is about the way you think. Okay, Not so much about working up an emotion. It's about what you're thinking about. You're thinking about Christ. If you've got that, you've got the book of Philippians. Lord, we thank you. You're a great God. You've given us so much that you sent your son to die for us to pay for our worst thing our sin and our judgment, our death eternally, our separation from you, that your son did this, we're unworthy of that. But to think that that's not just the only thing that uh, having Christ gives for us, it's that you are interested in care for us and take care of us in the midst of difficult circumstances and in the best of circumstances, you're there. So help us to mind uh, who you are and what you've given and reflect who you are because we've thought about who you are. And so may we have the mind of Christ that we would reflect it in our actions, our attitudes, and our emotions. 
and this we pray in the name of Jesus, the great Savior. Amen.